Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shocker. Since 2004, a group of committed people have gathered to call for an end to migrant deaths along the U.S.-Mexico border by staging an annual week-long 75-mile walk from Sasebe, Sonora, Mexico to Tucson, Arizona. In May 2020, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, participants were unable to physically unite to remember those who have died crossing. In order to continue to raise awareness about migrant deaths and to help raise money for local border justice organizations, organizers launched an alternative migrant trail walk experience to bring people together in a virtual environment. Proceeds benefited BorderLinks, the Autumn Anti-Border Collective, Keep Tucson Together, and the No More Deaths Emergency COVID-19 Bond Fund. The Migrant Trail 2020 Alternative Experience included a week of daily reflections, videos, podcasts, and featured speakers. Today on 30 Minutes, our multi-part series continues with excerpts from In an Empire of Borders, Build Bridges, Not Walls, with author and co-founder of The Migrant Trail, Todd Miller. Up first, a member of the Migrant Trail Organizing Committee from New Mexico, Jamie Ann Wilson, introduces Todd Miller. I really want to introduce our speaker tonight, Todd Miller. Todd also was active in planning the very first Migrant Trail and has walked many times. Todd has been researching and writing about border issues for more than 15 years, currently lives in Tucson. He has also spent many years living and working in Oaxaca, Mexico, I believe working for Witness for Peace. And Todd is an absolutely prolific writer. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Tom's Dispatch, The Nation, the San Francisco Chronicle, In These Times, Guernica, Al Jazeera. He's also, some of you may follow this, he's a contributing editor on the border and immigration issue for the NACLA report on the Americas and has this column, Border Wars column that he writes. And additionally, since 2014, Todd has been very busy, not only having two children, but he has has authored four books, um, the first of which was Border Patrol Nation, Dispatches from the Frontlines of Homeland Security, Storming the Wall, Climate Change, Migration, and Homeland Security. His third, Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world, and his forthcoming book to come out in 2021, it looks like, per COVID, is Build Bridges, Not Walls, which draws on his 20 years of activism and reporting, calling us all to imagine a world without borders. So tonight, we welcome you, Todd. Todd is going to be speaking with us about the global expansion of the U.S. border. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Todd Miller. Today, I'm going to talk about uh, some of my research I've done on looking at the expansion of the U.S. border abroad. One of the things with with Empire of Borders was kind of conceptualizing the border in a different way. And I'll put it this way. I, when I went into the research of this, and one of the things that I tried to do to trying to figure out when did I start researching this book, I remember in 2010, I was asked to, um, write a story on, on the earthquake in Haiti, an immigration story to see if like people are leaving the island um, after the earthquake. And I, I imagine people remember the earthquake in Haiti. It was devastating. Um, 
there were over 200,000 people who died and over a million people displaced. And when I began to write the story, I, what I found was not a, an immigration story. People were really just trying to um, get their lives back together. People were literally in the rubble of their own homes. It was a border story. The United States sent a jumbo jet over, over the island, over Haiti, and said, you know, with a pre-recorded voice of the ambassador, who, who said, if you leave the island, you will be interdicted and returned. And this is a message from the United States. And the United States had sent 16 Coast Guard cutters right up to the, the shoreline of Haiti. And they had also instructed Geo Group, the private prison company, to open up beds in uh, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, um, for this anticipated exodus. And what happened was not an exodus. What I learned in that moment was how quickly how quickly a border can be formed, how, how far it could it extend, a thousand miles from the mainland of the United States, how aggressive it could be, and how it was much more than, than just the U.S.-Mexico border, the U.S.-Mexico border being a huge part of it, of course. I do believe that writing that story was probably for myself the first seed to writing Empire of Borders, and it was conceptualizing the border in a kind of more bigger global um, sense, but the, as the United States as a protagonist to this border extension. Another story was uh, I went to Puerto Rico in 2012. I actually went there just right before the pandemic in February, and I can say the same thing. I went to the West Coast, and in 2012, I was very surprised by the amount of green striped vehicles, the kind of vehicles that you see walking the migrant trail, right, around Sasa Bay, along the different highways. 286 and 86, the same exact green striped vehicles were, were patrolling the west coast of Puerto Rico. And I could talk about that. But the story I want to share was one that I, I interviewed a national uh, a park ranger, and he had been deputized by the U.S. Border Patrol. And he was on the Mona Island. And the Mona Island is about 32 miles away from the Dominican Republic. And it's actually U.S. territory. So he was deputized, so if anyone arrived there without documents to be in the United States of America, they could detain them. And that's, in the story he told me happened like a month before, a ship or a boat of people from Haiti, again, had, it started to sink and it crashed and people got off the boat and ran onto the Mona Island. And of course they didn't have documents to be in the United States and they were detained and then Border Patrol came from Aguadilla in Puerto Rico and brought them back, detained them there, and then formally deported them back to Haiti. And again, that's about a thousand miles away from the mainland United States. It was just a small little U.S. territory. It's not on the island of Puerto Rico. It's a separate island closer to the Dominican Republic. And yet here's a fragment of the U.S. border. So there's another clue to how big and expansive this border is. The third story I wanted to share happened in southern Mexico. This was in 2014. I went there after Mexico announced their southern border program. And people probably remember in, in the summer of 2014, there was a lot of attention on the U.S. southern border about unaccompanied children. And um, the media came down and, and we're doing a lot of coverage and and um, during that time, Mexico announced the southern border program. So I went down there just like two or three weeks after. And I went to a town called Arriaga, which is about 150 miles away from Tapatula and the Guatemalan border. 
And what happened in Ar Arriaga was that it pretty much cleared out of people. People would congregate there, mainly from Salvador, from um, Guatemala and Honduras, would congregate there because that was where the train left. And they would congregate in the middle of town. But then with the, with the new Southern border program, all these operations happened and people just cleared out. And these operations happened with support from the United States, with pressure from the United States, with money from the United States, with resources from the United States, with trainings from the United States. I'd been there the year before and I'd seen like all the people in the middle, in the center of town. So I asked, you know, where did everyone go? And people pointed down the rails. So I ended up walking down the rails for a couple miles and it was very hot kind of a humid hot in the kind of jungle area of Chiapas. And um, finally, I got out really, really, really far out there. And I started seeing groups of people and they, they were camped along the side of the rails. So I talked to one group um, for a while and there were about 10 people, about half of them uh, teenagers, um, all from El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras. And they were headed to the United States. There was one uh, man in particular, he was a butcher from Chimaltenango in Guatemala. He said he, it was his fourth time trying, and he had the bad luck of crossing or trying to cross in July, exactly when Peña Nieto, the Mexican president, announced the Southern Border Program. And that bad luck led to him being deported three times. And so this is his fourth time. Mind you, there's another thing I, that, that this reminded me of before I finish the story with him. He, it reminded me of, you know, what you see in the Arizona desert, too, like with the prevention through deterrence strategy, the blockading of the urban areas along the U.S.-Mexico border, how people end up funneling into the desert, going into the desert. And it was very much, it was very similar to that because it would just happen. It was really fresh, but people were definitely really forced into these areas that were way more vulnerable. And um, the train itself is, is very vulnerable, as, as many people here know. And it just remind, reminded me of, you know, not only an extension of the U.S. border, but an extension of the U.S. strategy of prevention through deterrence. And, and that, I got that so strongly when I was talking to this man from Guatemala. And he actually, while we were talking, after he told me he had been deported three times, he uh, reached into his pocket and brought out his wallet. And then he opened up his wallet and he showed me he had no money left because all his money was gone. And then he said he's trying to get to Miami to see his children. And then he brought out a picture um, from his wallet of one of his children. This picture was one of those pictures that you look at and you know that it's been looked at a hundred, maybe a thousand times, right? And it, it's warped at the edges. It's kind of frayed at the edges. But it was a picture of his son, who was 10 years old at the time. And he hadn't seen his son in eight years. Then he said, I'm going, I'm going to make it to Miami no matter what, right? And this is the reason why. I left him my number and I never ended up hearing from him or anything. And I, but I've wondered about, you know, what happened if he made it and he was, had so such a long journey to go. Like for me to go to Miami, all I had to do was cruise up to Tuxa Gutierrez and get on an airplane. And maybe in five hours, I'm in Miami for him. Who knows how long it was going to take him. He was in the middle of what, if you look at the U.S. border strategy, it says we have a multi-layered strategy, a quote-unquote multi-layered. And he was in the middle of a layer, one of the, you know, he got past the layer of the uh, Guatemalan border, which after the fourth attempt, right? But he still had so long to go. And they, they knew that there was checkpoints up the way. And then he hadn't even arrived to the U.S. southern border yet. That was one of the stories that really propelled 
me to go into this book. And this idea that this was, you know, the U.S. border, the U.S. border is extending is not any sort of secret. It's not something that I had to do a Freedom of Information Act or, uh, request for or anything like that. Like two years before I was there in 2014 and then meeting this man from Guatemala, um, Alan Burson, who was a former CDP official, he said that Guatemalan border with Chiapas is now our southern border. That's the quote from Alan Burson and really referring to the all the different programs that the United States has has been with Mexico, particularly what's known as a Merida Initiative, which has funneled billions of dollars into Mexico. And the third pillar of the Merida Initiative is called creating a 21st century border. Through that program, you get a lot um, going into this Mexico's southern border. And then Alan Burson also said, and he's one of the architects of this internationalization of the U.S. border, he said that it's uh, what he called in the post 9-11 era, the international the externalization or the extension of the U.S. border was what he called a massive paradigm change. So it's an addition. It's, it becomes another part of the U.S. border strategy. You are listening to excerpts from In an Empire of Borders, Build Bridges, Not Walls, with author and co-founder of the Migrant Trail, Todd Miller, from the Migrant Trail 2020 Alternative Experience on 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Even as I went into uh, researching this book after all these, what I just told you, what I shared with you of these, these different stories and knowing that there, it was pretty extensive, I, had, I have to tell you, I, even I, was, I didn't know the, the, even the, a fraction of what I was going to learn or the extent of it in terms of uh, like there's 23 Customs and Border Protection attaches around the world. There's 48 Immigration and Customs Enforcement attaches around the world. The United States is doing border programs in more than 100 countries around the world. The extensiveness of it was quite startling, but don't take my word for it. I'm going to share a couple quotes from uh, some of our friends at Customs and Border Protection. For example, Robert Bonner, he's a CBP commissioner from uh, 2004. So the first when CBP was created in 2003, of course, and he was the, well, the first commissioner. He said, extending our zone of security where we can do so beyond our physical borders um, so that American borders are the last line of defense, not the first line of defense. So this idea of line of defense, those are his words, militarization of the border, right? not the first, but the last line of defense. So how much is this border extending? Um, this continues under the Trump administration. Uh, John Kelly, which people remember, was the first Secretary of Homeland Security for the Trump administration. And during his confirmation hearing in 2017, he said that border security cannot be attempted as an endless series of goal line stands on the one foot line at the ports of entry, oh, the football metaphor, right? At the one foot line at the ports of entry or along the thousands of miles of border between this country and Mexico. I believe the defense of the Southwest border starts 1,500 miles to the South with Peru. That's an exact quote. 
and I did check the geography on that. <laughs> I took I took I took the mileage and and, and checked to see if Peru was a thousand five hundred miles, and it's further than a thousand five hundred miles. Our officials are a little geographically challenged, perhaps. Um, but uh, exactly one thousand five hundred miles was the next place I want to talk to you about, which is Sacapa, Guatemala, and that was one of the the first places I went once I started really researching Empire of Borders. And Sacapa is, um, it's located kind of close to the Honduran border. It has a military base and I was going to the military base and I wanted, I was going to meet, I had arranged a meeting with the commander there of what was a new border patrol of Guatemala called the Chorti. And I got there two hours late. And so I had to convince soldiers at the gate at the military base if to still let me interview the commander and my whole point of going there the whole thing that i wanted to learn was if the united states had been involved in creating this border patrol in guatemala that was the one thing i wanted to know so i wanted you know i wanted to see if like what they would tell me if if, if i could get any information on what the u.s involvement was and so um the soldiers go, I'm kind of waiting there at the gate, the soldiers go and um, start to talk. And then eventually one of the soldiers comes back and then he asked me if I'm with, if I was with Bortak. And, and, <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> and now, now Bortak, I, I, when I was doing presentations on the book, I'd ask people around the entire country, I was like, have you ever heard of Bortak? But most people, if you just are talking to people they don't they haven't heard of Bortak and you have to kind of be like research the border patrol a lot to know about Bortak and Bortak of course is the SWAT team of the U.S. border patrol and so he asked me if I'm from Bortak I went me <laughs> and um and so basically that was it you know proof in the pudding there it was you know a 17 18 19 year old soldier knew about Bortak a thousand five hundred miles away from the United States at this gate you know they had been there of course but i still got in there and um was able to interview the commander and the commander the first pretty much the first thing the commander said our torti the torti is a creation of the u.s embassy then he started talking about all the trainings he talked about how bortac was there border patrol police units and he talked about the armored vehicles and their guns all, all of this were coming from the united states the armored vehicles he showed me this their armored armored jeeps and um I should mention this because I, I did get an interview with um, CBP officials in Washington of a year or two later, and they talked about those very armored vehicles. And there was an interchange between two of the officials that I thought was quite revealing. And one of the officials called those armored vehicles, which he said they were donating to all the Central American border patrols, right? So not just this one, just there was a bunch of others and there were donations, he called them donations. And the other um, official, there was three of them. One of the other officials looked at him and said, did you just say donations? And the official said, kind of sheepishly, he said, yes. Um, and then like he was using a PR term and the, another official said, no, they're not donations, they're an investment. And then he paused and he said, we expect a return on our investment. And I think that kind of shows this idea of extending the border, this, this part of the border strategy in a nutshell. Um, this idea that the extension from the, the eyes of the United States 
they're they they say they're trying to stop people long long before they even reach the the U.S. border. I also was able to like interview trainers that that went to international countries and and do that sort of thing, and just to see how this whole operation works. And one of the trainers I interviewed, he um. You know, he talked about them being an assessment team. So they would go to different countries, like over 100 countries, and they'll do assessments, like a CBP assessment team. And they'll go look at a border, and they're like a doctor. And I think he used that word. They're a doctor, and if the border looked ill, which means if, if it didn't have enough militarization, I guess, um, then they would do an assessment and do a prescription. So, for example... In Dominican Republic, the Dominican Republic, the CBP sent an assessment team there in 2006. The assessment team said there was a lot of porosity. It was porous. They needed a border patrol. In 2007, Dominican Republic then, by presidential decree, said we will now have a border patrol. And lo and behold, 2008, they had their border patrol. And I actually, in 2012, I went there after Puerto Rico and I saw their border patrol. And the Border Patrol had been trained by the United States, the whole thing, the resources, everything. And they were actually, one of the things that really surprised me, they were, I went to Dajabon. Dajabon's right on the border with Haiti. And it's right on the Massacre River, for people who know the geography there. They had put a protest barricades. It was almost like the wall, a miniature wall, like you see in Nogales, right? The, the border guards are sitting on their X's, much like the Border Patrol agent. Like there would be one border guard, then another a quarter mile away. And it was, it seemed like to be basically a very similar strategy um, that we see um, here on the U.S.-Mexico border. So there, that's one example of the Dominican Republic. There's, but again, I, I, I want to just stress that these are just one of many. It's not just limited to the, hem, the Western Hemisphere or the Caribbean, Kenya. In 2010, around the same time, Dominican Republic started its border patrol. Kenya started its own border patrol. Again, with training and resources from the United States, I went there. I could talk more about that if you want. I went to the Philippines. One of the trainers, that was one of the places he went. What, what does a 7,000 island nation have to do with borders, right? Everything, right? If you look at, there's, there's documents and documents written about the borders, how important the maritime borders are. Um, how important they are to the global economy, right? How important this whole area is. And so important that the United States gave Philippines $30 million right before I got there. And they built a command and control center in the Manila Bay, which then is kind of like the integrated fixed tower system that we see on the U.S.-Mexico border with these kind of towers looking over everything. And built by, lo and behold, not a not a company from the Philippines, but the Raytheon Corporation. I also went to Jordan, the Jordan-Syrian border and the Jordan-Iraqi border. Raytheon Corporation also got a, a big contract for those borders with money from the United States going through the Jordanian government to build, yet again, another surveillance system with, with, with kind of integrated fixed towers, command and control centers, armored vehicles, what they call passive fencing. And of course, when you think of Syria and Iraq, you're talking in huge huge, huge displacements and, and refugee crises of magnitudes that I can barely even fathom, right? But here's, here's this whole international border system going on in those places. And speaking of companies, one of the things I did, I looked into a lot is, is the um, 
industry behind this this global border apparatus and it's it's an industry that's growing um so i i went to many different ex expos and conventions where where vendors and corporations will go and sell their wares from all over the world really i went to one in tel aviv you go into these often to these to the expos and they're almost like cathedrals of science fiction or you go into like you're seeing a crystal ball to what is being imagined for these homeland security escapes or border escapes and um the one in tel aviv was all about robots and drones and what they called unmanned ground vehicles and they were there doing demonstrations of some of the technologies and i remember looking watching a, a kind of a ground robot there had a handgun and a round ground robot and it was like buzzing around the ground and this announcer who's speaking to us in english of course so there's people from all over the world like these technologies were were being developed in in israel but were being sold all around the world and while we were looking at this robot on the ground he pointed up and he said do you hear that and we looked up in the sky and we're like no and he's like yeah because it doesn't make any sound and we're like what is it and we look up and you, and you see this like white vehicle like flowing back and forth over us and it's a drone and um it turns out it's it was called an orbiter an orbiter 3 drone and those orbiter drones could do surveillance but they were also what they call suicide drones they could get surveillance but they could also serve as a missile so they could dive bomb a target i mean that's that's just one example of many examples of what you see at these expos for this industry and when i wrote border patrol nation in 2014 i believe the homeland security global industry was about 300 billion dollars and the latest one i saw was for 800 billion dollars projected for 2025 and this was a post covid projection covid is helping the border industries in terms of biometrics in terms of what they call non touch technologies I also went to um uh expo called the International Summit on Borders and I want to mention this one too because they not only talked about the kind of technology of enforcement but they talked about the technology of how people can who can pass through borders without problems can do that more easily. But one of the technologies they talked about there was one they called Happy Flow. Um Happy Flow was basically was being a pilot program in Aruba. So if you arrive to Aruba, you get off the plane and you and you you facial recognition takes your face picture of your face and if all checks out and that's the key if all checks out you cruise right through and no no agents nobody questioning you and they they made the joke every time that and then you'll have your luggage delivered to your hotel room right and so this idea that there's a sex sector that that there's completely open borders for was very much a, a part of this this um international summit on borders in fact they talk quite a bit of this harmonization of borders what they call harmonization harmonization i heard it over and over and over and over again harmonization among all these different countries why haven't we figured this out before why are we just starting to do this you know it's not only united states that's extending its borders it's europe european union it's australia it's other places why aren't we cooperating why aren't we doing this all together you know so there's open borders not only for people like me with US passports right or anyone with a US passport but also for US corporations also for the US military also for political interests you know there's open border also for greenhouse gas emissions you know there's open border policies 
seemingly for all of that stuff. And then um, the closed border policy seems to be the people that are, are the ones impacted by all of that stuff. And um, the ones that are, are displaced or dispossessed often, you know, like there's an open border policy for, for mining companies, for example, and the extraction of natural wealth. And, but the people who, who might have, whose water supplies might be poisoned and can no longer survive there and have to move, there's a closed border policy for them. And so this harmonization was one of the biggest epiphanies that I had of this, in this book was that the U.S.-Mexico border is one part of a much bigger global apparatus that's forming between the, the global north and the global south. And then when you do the calculations, it's more than 70 border walls, right, around the world. There's 15 border walls in 1989. 70 now, two-thirds were constructed after 9-11. But I wanted to end by saying, as I've um, traveled the world, and I have stories within Empire of Borders of the mighty resistance to this stuff um, in many different forms, small and big, in many different ways and diverse ways from like civil disobedience to very spiritual ways, um, that the kind of resistance and um, engagement with this that I've seen and could like fill up volumes and volumes and it, and it seems like it's really imperative to say that, especially as I speak with the migrant trail walk, you know, uh, in, in this spirit. You've been listening to excerpts from In an Empire of Borders, Build Bridges, Not Walls, with author and co-founder of The Migrant Trail, Todd Miller, from The Migrant Trail 2020 Alternative Experience on 30 Minutes from KXCI Tucson. You can learn more about Todd Miller's work at toddmillerwriter.com. Since 2004, a group of people have gathered to call for an end to migrant deaths along the U.S.-Mexico border by staging an annual week-long 75-mile walk from Sasebe, Sonora, Mexico to Tucson, Arizona. In May 2020, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, participants were physically unable to unite to remember those who have died crossing. In order to continue to raise awareness about migrant deaths and to help raise money for local border justice organizations, organizers launched an alternative migrant trail walk experience to bring together people in a virtual environment. More information is available at azmigranttrail.com. This is part of a multi-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org.